I mentioned before the service began a little about my background and it's in the bulletin. I just want you to know that's all basically irrelevant to much of anything, what we have done. What's relevant is who we are. And who I am is simply a beggar. I come among you as a beggar. But I don't beg for myself because there's absolutely nothing on God's earth that I want. And basically nothing I need either. I pray for my children that they retain the faith, which they do. But I really beg earnestly for someone else. And I beg for a friend of yours and a friend of mine. His name is Lazarus. And Lazarus is on your back porch today. And I'm going to try to encourage you to invite him into your house and give him some lunch. But I can warn you in advance that he has never had a bath in his life. His clothes are ripped and torn and dirty. He has blisters all over his body, some with pus oozing out. He has no shoes on. If he would have some, he couldn't get them on his feet because they're all swollen. He's a despicable sight. And you would not want your children or your grandchildren probably to even have him in your house. But if he could be maybe under the table where we keep our dogs and our cats at dinner time, he might get a few crumbs. You see, Lazarus is not only real, but he's also a symbol representing the 12, 20 million people on this planet who die every year of starvation. Not illness, accident, starvation. It's very difficult to comprehend as an American citizen, richest nation in the world, really we're the second richest, Norway's the richest, small country, they got all the North Sea oil, very wealthy country. But we're right behind Norway, the richest country in the world. We might not think so, but we really are. United Nations last came out that I saw was 2014. If anybody makes $25,000 income here, you're in the upper 5% of the wealth of the world economy. Not U.S. economy, world economy. If anybody has an income of $50,000 or more, probably all of us, we're in the upper 1% of the wealth of the world. Now, people can argue economists, what are your metrics and all that. That's irrelevant. That's, it's a good idea of where we fit with the peoples on this planet. And Lazarus symbolizes the 20 million who die of starvation. I'd like to share a little bit about the distinction between poverty and destitution. Big difference between poverty and destitution. We do have a lot of poverty in America. People often ask, why do you help, not Americans, why do you go to other countries? We have a lot of poor here. That's true. We have no destitutes, by the way. We have a lot of poverty, but no destitution. What's the difference? Poverty is when you have nothing. But in America, we have many, many safety nets, unemployment insurance, workman's comp, pension programs, union programs, soup kitchens that we all support as we must. There's always a place to go. Nobody is dropping on the streets at night because of starvation in America. In fact, the, the, the beggars among us from the street corners will work for money 
injured vet, this sort of thing, they're well in the upper, upper class of poverty in the world. Destitution is when you have absolutely nothing. Your family has nothing. They can't help you out. Your church has nothing. Nobody in the church does anything either. Your relatives have nothing. So where are you going to go? Your government, if they have anything, they won't give it to you. It's going to go to their cronies. That's part of the problem of corruption right there, of government. You're going to die. It's very difficult to comprehend what it's like to die of starvation because we've never experienced it. I often wondered why is it that some people don't like to talk about events in their life, like the veterans of Normandy and even Korea. Uncle Freddie, what was it like when you were in Normandy? What was it, Uncle John, when you were at, uh, Norm uh, at Utah Beach? Uh, it was bad. Well, tell me about it. No, I don't want to tell you about it. And I finally figured out, after Vietnam, why you don't want to talk about it. Unless you've had an experience, you will not comprehend it. And that's basically true of America today. Does not understand the rest of the world. Does not understand really the blessings that we have, which is so, so abundant. And I'll use an illustration, might be a little bit uh, <laughs> close to the heart of some, but it would be like a man who would say to his wife after a very long, arduous, difficult pregnancy and then delivery, sweetheart, I know just how you feel. <laughs> I'd run out of the house quickly before you get slapped for that one. You don't know. You might say empathetically, I think you must have felt badly. That's true. But don't say, I know how you feel, because you didn't go through it. And that's the way it is in dealing with destitution. Food for the Poor is an organization that deals primarily with the destitute, not the poor. And the destitute and our, our neighbors. Central America, every country there except Costa Rica. People say, why aren't you in Costa Rica? Because their economy is very healthy. So they got all the banana, all the stuff that used to be in Hawaii is Costa Rica now, when they do have a healthy economy. The only country in Central America that does. Also a lot of real estate. But all the other ones are in destitute situations. And there are two things I'd like to share with you this morning. First of all, well, really three, I'd like to thank you for those of you who have been helping with Food for the Poor over the years. But I'd also like to share with you what is it that we do. But more importantly, how do we do what we do? What we do is we provide resources for existing ministries. Now, just to sort of understand, to put in the context of the destitute that we're dealing with, sometimes I, I do everything I can to try to communicate the dire nature of destitution. I sometimes show movies, show pictures while I'm talking to try to impress upon how what the dire situation is. But one of, one of the ways I could maybe help you maybe with a little understanding of that, is what do you do when children, we all have our hearts close to our children and our grandchildren and probably even great-grandchildren, to think in terms of little children, four or five, six years old, who have not had a meal of food of any kind for a day or two or three or even four days. No food for four days. You try to explain it to American kids. Well, go to the refrigerator. Or, uh, go to a what? Refrigerator, 30% of the places we serve don't have electricity, and they won't probably be for generations yet. There's no such thing as a refrigerator. There's no food. And what does the mother do? 
children there are screaming. And I've been told, I've never experienced it, that if you are having stomach spasms and pain of hunger, there's nothing you can really describe that's that bad. And kids experience that. The mothers, what they do is they go down to the riverbank, they scoop up some mud and clay and make little round cookies. They call them sugar cookies. There's nothing sugar about them. But that's what they call them. And when a child is screaming, they break off a couple of pieces. This is a little sugar cookie right here from Haiti. And they put a little bit of sugar on it. <coughs> that's really why they're called sugar cookies. Or a little Kool-Aid and give that to a child. Mud. A bunch of mud. Uh, a bark from the tree, certain trees, if they would have them. They don't have any trees left. They're all deforested. But they give this to a child. Now, a rhetorical question. When's the last time you fed a grandchild? Mud for lunch. Never. Never happens. But strange as it may seem, this does work for a while. Because it's something in the stomach. And bark from a tree will maybe help with that too. It's something in the stomach. But what is not seen here, when you try to explain this to people, what is not seen is the bacteria that's in here. And there's bacteria. Depending on where they got this mud and clay, we tell the mothers don't use this. This is poison. This actually will cause diarrhea and dysentery and strain those little little bodies. We have very little muscle strength to start with. And they get diarrhea, dysentery, and they die, those little children. We just plead with people not to use this. But then that presents another problem, and that's sort of at the heart and core of so much destitution, and that's illiteracy. Try to explain to somebody who has never had this problem, what's a bacteria? What's a virus if you're illiterate? We try, we can help you. They'll run off to the voodoo priest, he'll kill a few chickens, say a few incantations, and it's going to solve it. No, that's illiteracy. And so much of world destitution is because of illiteracy. You have to begin at the beginning with education. This happens to be Reformation weekend. We are all part of a tradition of Reformation. And it's rather significant on this weekend, we think in terms of the next year will be the 500th anniversary of the Reformation of Europe, including not only just Germany or Italy, but also England and the Church of England. To understand one of the byproducts of the Reformation happened to be education. Now, I learned this from a Jewish admiral whose father was a great uh, rabbi in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We were having dinner during the era, Vietnam era. We were out in San Diego, and the admiral was dining with us, and the admiral said to me, he said, Chaplain, I understand you're a Lutheran. Is that right? I said, yes, sir, I'm a Lutheran. I'm proud of it. Why don't you Lutherans ever study history? I said, excuse me, what do you mean by that? He said, it's disgusting. No one knows your history. When I say the same about Americans, why don't you study your history? You, you can graduate from college today without having a course in history. But I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you tell me. Who was it that started education for the masses? And I said, well, I'm going to be more specific. What do you mean? In France, probably Cousteau. America, probably John Ben uh, uh, Franklin. Go down to St. Louis, Pestalozzi. Pestalozzi was a great educator in St. Louis. That's got Pestalozzi Boulevard here. And he was an educator. Oh, he said, Chaplain, you don't know anything about history. 
And I said, well, I do know history. My brother wrote about 10 books in history. He said, I don't care what your brother wrote books on. Who started education for the masses? Have you ever heard of Martin Luther? I said, yes, sir, I've heard of Martin Luther. <laughs> he said, well, read his sermon of 1542 on education. If you don't have a copy, come by my office, I'll give you one. I think it's one of the most dynamic sermons I've ever read. Bear in mind, Jewish rabbi son, who was a historian. In that sermon, Martin Luther said to the people at Wittenberg, I hope your ears are attuned. Bear in mind, in the, 50, in the 16th century, only 5% of the upper-class boys went to school. 5% of the upper-class boys. Luther said, every boy, every boy and every girl must be in school. And then he went on to say, it's from the milk of a mother's breast that the gospel goes from age to age by sitting on mother's knee. Martin Luther started education of the masses. More importantly, that's within the Christian tradition. Did you know that in America, of the original Ivy League schools, original schools, there were some added later on, every original Ivy League school except one was started by the Christian community. Harvard was the seminary for the pilgrim kids. Yale was the seminary for the Congregationalists. Princeton was the seminary and still is a great seminary for the Presbyterians. And then as you go out in schools, have you heard of Notre Dame? You heard of St. Louis University? You heard of Concordia? You heard of the whole system? You heard of United Methodist? All over America, you have schools that have Christian names. Why is that? Because they were started by the Christian community. The same is true with the whole concept of compassion, first for the poor, Go way back to Florence Nightingale. But in the Western civilization, the hospital movement was started by the people of God, the Christians. That's why you find hospitals all over America that have names like St. Joan, St. Thomas, St. Mary's Hospital, Lutheran Hospital, Baptist Hospital right down the street. All over the country, Cleveland Hospital, Mayo Clinic with St. Mary's in Rochester, Minnesota. You go all over the country. And you'll find hospitals with Christian names. Why is that? That is exactly the heritage from which we come in the Admiral's right. <coughs> we don't know our history. We don't know from where we have come. Which is one reason we don't know where we're going. Well, it's this kind of a concept that Food to the Poor is trying to emulate. In countries in Latin America and the islands, we start with education, and we need the kids when they're two years old and three years old, not seven or eight. For many of them, their, their life is already hopeless by the time they're eight or nine years old. And that is why Food to the Poor, even though we feed over a million people a day, realizing that's not the answer. Welfare is not the answer. We make mistakes on that, many of us would contend, because there's no end to it. We maintain Every human being desires the dignity of providing for his own needs and not relying on others. And so it's that education, living in the 21st and 22nd centuries as we look down the future, without an education you don't have hope. For many of these kids in Nicaragua and Guatemala and Haiti and Jamaica. And so the largest amount of our 
financial resources go to fund and start support schools. We support over 900 schools in the countries that we serve. And akin to that are hospitals. It's helping people like SMILE, helping people like Doctors Without Borders. We work in concert with many, as we are ecumenical ourselves, Roman Catholic, Episcopalian, Lutheran, all kinds, Methodist, Presbyterian. We're working with the Christian community. What we do is provide resources. First of all, it is food, as people are starving. But trying to find a solution, just giving people food is not the solution. The solution is providing them with employment. We build many different areas that enhance life. Just to mention a few of them, we do a lot of husbandry, a lot of farming, a lot of pigs and cows and goats. We're the largest philanthropy that does that. We do all of those. But we also have come up with new innovative things, like tilapia ponds. They're only about 20 years ago. We built the first tilapia pond in Guatemala to see if this has any potential. We find out that with a, even an average tilapia pond, we can support an orphanage of over 100 kids. We now have over 400 tilapia ponds that we build. One tilapia pond gives employment to about 35 to 50 people. People in the islands are fishermen. They're all fishermen. But you can't do much fishing in these old wooden rowboats out in the Florida Straits. You gotta go in the deep water, that's where the big fish are. You can't go there with rowboats. And so we provide fishing villages. We buy a fishing village is five boats. We give one boat to five fishermen. And the fisherman who's the most adept at it becomes the captain. So you got five boats, five fishermen, 25 fishermen, 25 families. We build 35 to 50 homes. A home costs $3,200 with indoor plumbing. We make them a little bigger today because people in the islands take care of grandma too and grandpa and uncle Charlie. They don't just have one family. This on the side, if you're ever looking for a daycare worker, you can't do any better than finding Jamaican girls, Jamaican women. They grow up with taking care of the seniors in their homes and Haitian women the same way. And the body smells and aromas and odor, that doesn't bother them. That's part of their culture. And I've worked with a lot of hospice people in, in South Florida, and Jamaican caregivers are phenomenal. But it's part of their culture, part of their background, part of their training. They love people. So it's the fishing villages, the orphanages, the tilapia ponds. We teach the little girls how to grow flowers and how to make flower rains. Unbeknown to many people that every night, 747s are leaving Latin America someplace, loaded with flowers. They get back to the wholesaler here in America maybe by 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. By 7 o'clock, a lot of those flowers are at hospitals all over America. They have come, they were picked just 48 hours ago, back in Honduras or Guatemala. <coughs> Again, getting people to take care of themselves. That's what we do. Now, how do we do that? We do not work through any government. Because the number one cause of world destitution, number one cause is corruption in government. It's not, a, it's not has not, almost nothing to do with food. Food's not the problem. We have enough food, we can grow enough food, the potential is there, to feed every man, woman, child, dog, cat, turtle, pet, into obesity. The potential's there. So why don't we do it? What we are doing is providing money through governments that are corrupt 
and it never gets to the people. Some people say, how do we know it gets to the people? Because our way of distribution is exclusively through people whom we know. I have a brother who was a missionary in Africa for 40-some years, Nairobi, Kenya, Nigeria. If I give my brother $2,000, when he was there, he's not gone to glory. I know my brother. I give him $2,000, he'll stretch it to $3,000. Very recent, I was in a little orphanage in El Salvador, operated by a Roman Catholic nun, sweet little lady. I don't think she weighed 100 pounds. She had about 75 girls in her orphanage. Every day, she wanted those girls to sit in her lap, one or two or three of them. And she would be like a grandmother. She'd mess with her hair and tell them stories, sing with them, pray with them, just like a mama, like a grandma. I was there visiting with her, and she asked, she had two girls in her lap, and she said, would you mind going into my closet to get my sewing basket? I, I need a different kind of needle and thread. She was fixing the skirt of one little girl's uniform for school. Needed a different needle or thread. So I went, went into her closet. There's almost nothing in there. But I counted there five wash dresses, and there's some flip-flops in the corner. And I know, and others have told me the same, if I'd say, Sister, I want to give you $500, just go buy something for yourself. Maybe just get some new clothes. She wouldn't take a penny for herself. It all goes for the girls. She had no jewelry. If she wanted to have jewelry, she'd pick a flower and put it in her hair. Those are the kinds of people we work with. Not the kind of people I want 10% for myself or 30%, more so like 50%. Working with people like my brother, working with missionaries of different churches. And we are so very ecumenical. We work together with many different groups, including Franklin Graham's Shepherd's Purse. Great ministry, great ministry, as well as Habitat. After the earthquake in Haiti, I saw how the church and the people of God and the people in general can work together. We were working on one side of the street. Habitat was across the street. Billy Frank, Franklin Graham was down the street. We were using their trucks. They were using our lumber. We were all working together. The U.S. Navy ship Mercy was out in the harbor doing operations. You get people together to work together to help our brothers and sisters in Christ. What does Jesus look like? He looks like that nun. He looks like that little boy that I can give a craft glass of water. Matthew, he read it. I was hungry. I was naked. I was thirsty. When I give a little boy a glass of water, to me, that's Jesus. When I give a little girl who's playing soccer out in the streets of Haiti with no clothes on, and I see it often, give her a little dress. It's not hard to find dresses. We have our, my home church, where I was a pastor and retired, we just sent out about 500 more dresses before this last Christmas. The pillow dresses. Some of you, I'm sure you've heard of the pillow dresses. So easy to make a pillow dress. A pillow, uh, a pillow slip is open at one end, right? So you cut a hole in the other end. That's for the head, a couple for the arms, and uh, put a little appliques of bears and animals there. You got a pretty dress. And to those girls, that's like a ball gown. We even make a pillow dress, different size pillows. We have ladies at the church make a lot of pillow dresses. And they give those to the girls. People often ask, do they take care of things? I said, my goodness, they take care of them better than, than our kids. Oh, I can tell you as many stories, but my time is gone. I just want to mention to you, thank you for what support that you've given us in the past. You got this little brochure in your bulletin. You had this brochure here. Have a, take a look at this. I don't have one right here. Uh, maybe I have one here. Let's see. I, I know this from memory anyway. Uh, look at the picture in the front. Just look at that picture of that girl. 
That girl's hair is, is getting to be whitish. That's not because she's old. She's a young little girl. That's malnutrition, lack of protein. Then you, you look at that dress hanging on that skeleton. That girl is malnourished. She's in danger. If she doesn't get fed, she's going to become uh, unsavable. But the most important thing is look at her eyes. Just look at those eyes. Eyes are just hollow. You can look right through her. Sometimes you do a physical, the doctor takes his little flashlight and looks in your eyes. It's amazing what a doctor can see in your eyes. You don't have to have a little flashlight and a magnifying glass. You just look at these kids. There's no hope. There's no joy. There's no anger either. It's just they're there. That's not a normal kid. A normal kid is full of energy, jumping up trees, having fun with life, driving adults mad. And we love it. Grandparents say, you want your kids to be active. You want them to be healthy. And that's why these kids, they say, we want to get you and put you in a family, a family setting, which is an orphanage. It's not a bad thing. So many people have lost sight of the fact of how redemptive many orphanages are in situations like this. We knew that years ago with Father Flanagan's voice down. I did an internship in Omaha, Nebraska. got to know the Father Flanagan or organization 60 years ago. Some very dear friends of ours grew up in orphanages. Their parents lived about a mile down the street. Parents just, one employee didn't have the means to maintain them. And there's some merit to orphanages because when we closed a lot of the state institutions, not just orphanages, mental hospitals, hospitals for, for needy people, to let the community take care of them. These are the homeless people under our bridges today. Many of the homeless people, they need a little help. They need someone simply to help them, give them a little push once in a while, or get them out of a cold night. And because we feel, for whatever reason, back in the 60s, we closed all the institutions and turned them all loose. So that's freedom, freedom for them to be in poverty and destitution. If you can provide a gift, I mentioned about the house, you can look through those brochures, all the way, the biggest ministry, one of the biggest ones is houses. They cost $3,200. Sometimes we build two houses for that because some governments, and we, people ask, how do you get along with governments? You don't pay any taxes, you don't pay any duty. I have no problem. The governments come and plead with us. We come and help us. We get along fine with the governments. We just don't work through them. We work through missionaries. Not, we don't give the government a dime for, on, for anything. But the governments come and ask us, will you help us more? If you build a house in Nicaragua and in Honduras right now, you build a house, we'll build one too. So a $3,200 gift is for a congregation, it's two houses. But they're not all expensive. To us, that's expensive, I guess. Water wells for a community is about $200 or $150. But it comes as a surprise maybe to many of us in America to realize that for a, 50, for a, 10, a $20 donation, you can provide 400 meals for kids. For 20 bucks, you can feed 400 kids. Because a basic meal of beans and rice costs us 5.1 cents. We get a lot of our rice donated, beans, 5.1%. Now, where can you feed 400 kids in America for 20 bucks? It's not that ex difficult to provide comfort and consolation to others. Peachy Niles was a great missionary in India. 
Someone asked him once, Dr. Niles, how can I be a disciple of Christ? I want to serve. He said, well, a disciple of Christ, he said, by my definition and understanding, one poor beggar showing another poor beggar where to find a piece of bread. We're all beggars. We all stand before God, not with our righteousness, but we stand before God with a friend at our side. His name is Jesus Christ. And it's because of Jesus Christ that the Father opens the gates of eternal life. It's because of what he has done for us. And that now is given to us. The elements of the Eucharist are here. The body and the blood of Jesus Christ given to you and to me for the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. But that is not just for us to enjoy. It's to empower us to go into the world and be what Christ has said we are. You are my disciples. You are my witnesses. You go into that world of corruption, of sin, of destitution, and be a witness for me. And that's what we are. That's all we are. But it is what we are by the grace of God. Thank you for letting me share this message with you. If you have a gift to give to me, you can put it in that envelope. I'll put it in the offering. I'll be around and back after church. You just give it to me. One reason I like to have you give it to me is saves postage. That's one reason our operating costs are only 3.8%. Nobody comes close to that in the world of philanthropy. With over a billion dollars, billion, $300 million budget, our admin costs are 3.8%. That's what they were last year, 2014. If you can give a gift, wonderful. If you can't, don't lose the basic point of my message to you. My basic point is do something for somebody else. Maybe you don't want to help food for today, or you can't. That's fine. But what you can do, maybe, for you, your response, well, it might be to tell somebody, I love you. Give somebody a hug who needs a hug. Or say to somebody in your family, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I acted the way I did at your aunt's funeral, or whatever it might be, your wedding. I've been a pastor long enough to know there are a lot of feuds among families going on all the time. Hatfields and McCoys, they're always fighting. And we do the same thing. It's time to, to bury the axe. Start a new day. I'll just tell you one final little story. My dear sainted mother, seven kids. Every night she would make a point to have a word with all the children. And she might say to me, Walter, before you go to bed tonight, apologize to your sister for what you said at supper. Don't ever go to bed angry. Tomorrow's a new day. Don't let anything eat away at your heart. Make it right with others and make yourself right with God in Jesus Christ. And I have found that counsel been good counsel. Let not your heart be troubled. Start a new day afresh. The new day, thank God that you're breathing, that you're alive, and you can serve somebody else. God's peace be with you. Come to the table. The banquet of Christ. Amen. <laughs>